Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the March 2023 edition of State of Distress Debt part of the Focus podcast series where we focus on U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. It is March 3rd. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play, our litigation analyst, Nagisa Baluku, senior distressed analyst, Phil Brindell, both of Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Eliza ronalds Hannon of Bloomberg News. In addition, we're super pleased uh, to bring you our conversation with Victor Kosla, founder and chief investment officer over at Strategic Value Partners, where we talk a little bit about the founder's mentality, preserving culture through growth, and of course, well, the state of distress. We kind of have to go to that. Uh, but first, Phil, to you, uh, a bit of the mixed back, mixed month, uh, really, for high yield in February as we got some resurgent volatility. Uh, the, the index itself, the Bloomberg uh, High Yield Index, gave back about 1.3%, but all of that was from Treasuries. Excess returns were actually positive for the month. What were you seeing in the landscape of distressed? So I looked at everything at the end of February, and I was like, to hold it, did these numbers change? Because uh, we were at a 7.8% distress ratio at the end of January. And at the end of February, we were at 7.6% distressed. And, you know, what I look at is the ICE high yield index. They have a distressed index, which captures, you know, that that, that, uh, that the spread is over a thousand basis points in, in that index. And there's $105 billion of the $1.4 billion in the high yield index is distressed. So that put it in the middle of a range that, you know, I've been arguing this is where it looks like we live for a while um six to ten percent distressed ratio uh again the distressed market is staying true to its seasonal trends december through may is traditionally strong for credit we've talked about that a lot um january and february are already up ten percent uh each of those months was positive which actually equals the total of positive months that we had in 2022. Um, so one of the things that I think is kind of, you know, it's very short term, but, you know, I, I could see us doing is bouncing a little bit from the lows here. Maybe that 105 billion goes up to, you know, I don't know, 130 billion at the end of March. I, I, I do think we're kind of due for a blip up. Um, but generally speaking, I don't see a lot changing uh, you know, the, the, the sort of range we're in. That, that being said, um, higher rates are really challenging companies in the leverage finance space. Um, you know, every time I look at some of these companies and what they went in with in their capital structures into a bankruptcy and what they're trying to exit with in terms of uh, financing rates, it gets more and more difficult. You know, we're seeing a company like Avaya, which had a prepack and it's coming out. It basically, in its first chapter 11, it wiped out $3 billion of debt. And in its second, it's wiping out $2.6 billion of debt. And it's going to come out with $650 million of, um, of uh, actually $800 million of debt. But 650 mil only $150 million of that is actually take-back debt. 
So it, it's a lot, most of it is due money. So you're seeing companies really struggling under this higher rate. And, you know, I, I just, it, that's, that's why I think this just continues to be a, a nice distress cycle where, you know, the fuses are, are of different lengths based off of, you know, what their cash hoards are and liquidity uh, availability is. But eventually, uh, it's, I, I think unless you have a strong operations, you're, you, you might be visiting Chapter 11. Not everyone, yeah, no, but it's a, it's you know, a really the troubled ones. <laughs> it's a, definitely an interesting mechanic because even up spectrum, you see, you know, uh, we've had a little bit of a resurgent uh, new issuance marketplace this year. But, you know, that's new paper that's coming with sevens and eights in terms of coupon handles, refinancing fives. Right. So even in sort of the performing space, you know, there's there's some tentativeness and, and people are sort of just refinancing kind of because they have to versus sort of an elective thing just because of the incremental funding costs. But uh, not to really front run too much of, uh, uh, you know, the conversation that we'll uh, bring in momentarily with Victor, but you had sort of mentioned, I think, something that has been sort of a popular refrain over the recent months and some of the folks that we've talked to, which is sort of the nature of this cycle and, and how people anticipate that it might play out. It sounds like you're looking more of a traditional cycle, and I think we've maybe talked about this before, sort of a more of a 1990s, early 2000s type of variety versus maybe something that we got uh, or we've seen a little bit more recently. Is that fair? Yeah, that's really the case. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've, I've had a technical signal that looks pretty, that's been performing really well. Um, it, it suggested that you get out of the, the you know, high yield market in May of 2022. Um, and and, and the, the, the basic gist of it is that, um, distress cycles have these huge spikes and then when you see those spikes come off quickly that's when you want to really enter and I'm, when i say spikes i mean distress supply so you see the massive amounts of supply and then you see it come off and that's when you really want to get into the high yield market and what i'm seeing or you know that 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 works when you have that spike but i get it gets a little fuzzier when you get one of these longer drawn out cycles and that's that 2000 to 2022 it wasn't so clear there were some false starts and then it settled down and then it kept building and i could see that being here so i'm going to continue to have my struggle between my technicals and seasonals and what that might be telling me and you know kind of what my fundamental you know views are so but that's 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 the struggles of a strategist, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that maybe sets up as a really good segue to now bring in our conversation with Victor, wherein, amongst many other things, we do talk about uh, the current opportunity set. In this March edition of the State of Distress Debt podcast, we're very pleased to host Strategic Value Partners founder and Chief Investment Officer Victor Kosla. Victor, firstly, thanks so much for your time today and welcome to the show. Uh, you know, I wanted to maybe start, let's just jump right into things here. And, and you know, we're going to have a large range of topics to cover, but maybe capitalizing on the fact that you are indeed the founder here, maybe we can start with what led you after an already successful career on the street uh, to decide to start uh, SVP when you did in 2001. Uh, no, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was, uh, I was running a proprietary desk uh, for Merrill Lynch, uh, and, and we built a global business. I worked for two good, strong funds 
for a couple of years, and I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And and which is uh, because you know the uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you get the ability to create a business in the image you'd like. You get a chance to build a business forever, not a not a job, not a career which lasts three, five, ten years at a place, right? And for for, uh, for me personally, I was in my early forties. Uh, and I and I and, and I figured out for me that was the north star, and that's the journey I set out on. So I guess that I mean that actually is is a you know obviously I would assume that's sort of the driving force for for some people. But I guess maybe then what makes do you think uh, kind of creating it in your own image? What makes sort of uh, SVP unique? Do you think? Uh, wanted to build a business which was collegial which was uh, hard charging, hard driving, but also wanted to build a business uh, which, was, uh, which was developmental, where we grew and kind of developed people to kind of what we did, right? And, and I think when you, when you look at the firm kind of we've created, uh, we started out with seven, eight people 22 years ago. And today we've got about 175 people in the firm, right? And what I'm kind of, and, and the business we've created from, those, from that small part, which was a US-centered business, focusing very much on distressed debt, focusing very much on restructurings. And you look at the journey we've been on, yes, those were our roots, but today we have a business which uh, takes control of businesses, improves businesses, operates businesses. We have a business which buys hard assets like uh, airplanes, like toll roads, like power plants, right? And, and we have a business increasingly which is lending money at, uh, uh, you know, which is providing some of the risk capital a little lower down the structure, right? To be able to create that business, to create it organically over time, it's taken us all that, the, the, the collegiality, the transparency, the developmental piece, right? And, and when I say wanted to create a firm a certain way, the name of the company, you know, it's strategic, it's value, it's partners, right? If you, if you really think about what those, what those words mean, right? It's, it's, that is the business which we set out to create and that's the business I believe we have created. So a lot to sort of uh, peel apart there for sure. And, and I think we're gonna get into a fair amount of it, but I guess maybe starting at the beginning, I mean, you talk about going from a handful of people to 175 people, I guess, you know, maybe sticking just on the on the firm and the culture first, uh, before we dive into the market specifics, you know, how do you preserve culture as you scale a business that way? It is really hard, by the way, Nell. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, you, you know when, you, when you think of uh, growth creates its own challenges, right? Uh, we, all like, we all like to think of kind of, you know, uh, we, all, all, we all admire growth. We love growth. But it really has its own challenges. So, look, I'll describe it. 
so we always had a uh, we always had an investment team and a culture where we would sit down together on a very regular basis to kind of make to go through the pipeline of deals to kind of go through the, some of the valuation and some of the deal stuff around it, right? As the firm has grown, so I'm just thinking about the investment side now, right? I'm not uh, adding in the marketing side, the infrastructure side. I'm just thinking investment side. As the team has grown from five, six investment professionals to 80, eight zero investment professionals, and the team has grown where the investment professionals have different skills. There's an investment team. There is a uh, sourcing origination team, which calls banks and asset managers to buy debt, which deals with Wall Street trading desks. And there is an operating team. So when we take control of businesses, and we are looking to really operate them better, transform them even, right? So we've gone from that five-person investment team to 80 people with all these skills. We've gone to a business which is U.S. and Europe, 60-40. In that process, what we found is we just needed a lot of process. So we have today, there's a daily call, which, which most of the 80 people sign on for, which the sourcing origination trading team runs. There's a weekly meeting of the entire US team. There's a weekly meeting of the European team. The deals where we have control, the operating partners run a bi-weekly meeting going through all the control deals where the senior people, I can go on with the list, right? But you <laughs> see, you see the, the amount of time spent in that process is the having process, making it transparent and collegial that way is one thing. What I've also found is as people grow, as people develop, and we and look, we have, we've hired senior people from the outside, but a lot of the senior team is homegrown. So how do you do that? So what, what I've found is, so I'll sit down with 10, 11 people uh, in the firm every two weeks or so, one-on-one. -on -one. It's not to talk about deals. It's to really coach people. Like, what is it? Uh, hey, here are things you could be improving. Here are things you could do better. And by the way, what do you think I could do better, right? It is, uh, and, and uh, all 10, 11 of those people have their own coaches. I like that as a system. They have their coaches. I have a coach I've worked with for a decade now, right? So what I'm describing is this culture and everything I just said, those senior 10, 11 people, they're trying to do the same with their teams. Right, so it's like right? a continued growth environment, right? So it is. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's and by, Yeah, and by the way, and, and you can see with all that, the amount of effort it takes. I started out saying this stuff is a challenge in its own right, right? So when you, when you go and you want that uh, transparent collegial culture, you've got to create the developmental framework. So it can be that really hard to do. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So, I mean, obviously it's, a, it's worked for, for SVP, it's been successful. 
you know, before diving into the market specifically, and I want to bring Phil here uh, into the conversation in a moment here, but, you know, you had mentioned when we had chatted earlier, uh, and you touched on this a little bit uh, in sort of walking over some of what the firm does, but you're basically saying, hey, listen, you know, buying and selling distressed debt, that's maybe, you know, that's going to get you to the finish line, you know, three out of 10 years, but you get to build this more complete business. Uh, so I guess maybe help me understand, uh, you know, how do you think about credit cycles? How does the firm go about navigating credit cycles? Is it a geographic play or is it more uh, sort of centered on what you had mentioned in terms of this distribution between sort of both the trading markets as well as some of the infrastructure stuff? Uh, what, uh, no, uh, I've been in this business uh, between proprietary running a prop desk and uh, setting up strategic value partners, right? Uh, I've been doing this for about 30 years now. And, and you know, and what, uh, what we have found is that the distressed debt part of the business, buying distressed debt, restructuring businesses, restructuring the capital structure, it is, as you said, a very cyclical business. Two, three years out of 10, it's really good. The other seven, eight years, if you are a big investor and if you don't slow down, it can create problems for you, <laughs> right? So it's, a, it's a, because there isn't a lot of distressed debt all the time. So for us, uh, we went through a change which started 16, 17 years ago. So what we said was, boy, when we look at some of these businesses, there's real value, there's really opportunity in these distressed businesses to improve operations, to go out because, you know, some, the, the owner, the equity owner has often lost interest because they have, uh, uh, there's not much value in the equity. The management team sometimes, has, some people leave because their equity options are worth less, right? So when we walk into these businesses, we say, hey, lots of low-hanging fruit, but you can't really do that by just being the paper investor, the person who buys debt, restructures it, and then sells it in a couple of years. You have to operate. You have to try and even transform some of these businesses if the, uh, if, if the squeeze is worth it, right? And that's what we started to do. What we also did was very early on, uh, 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 no, I have been investing in Europe since the mid 90s. So uh, even when I was running a proprietary desk, was one of the first investors in Europe. And we said, boy, Europe is so large, so inefficient, I don't think I need to tell you, it constantly has economic issues and problems, right? <laughs> so, so I think we said, boy, Europe is, really interesting. So we set up a business in Europe in 2004, uh, a team in Europe. And by the way, Europe for us has historically accounted for about 40%, 40% of our book. And we found Europe to be inefficient. We found it, and, and we, we, we are real market leaders. We were in there so early. And by the way, all that means higher profits, by the way. Inefficiency equals higher profits, right? So we built an European business. And then I think we, what we also did, we said some of these hard asset categories, 
like, uh, and, and you heard me describe aviation earlier, or power generation, or uh, infrastructure, or parts of real estate. We said some of these are really interesting, but some of them aren't interesting all the time. But to really do it, you need to have operating platforms. You need an aviation management company if you're going to buy planes, park them in the desert, sell them, lease them, finance them, right? You can't do it as a paper investor. So what I'm describing is, you see the change which has taken place over the last few decades. And by the way, we keep, we keep building brick by brick new stuff into this. We've started a capital solutions business last year to more focus on deals where we can get to provide junior capital to make 14, 15, 16% returns, right? So what you, what you see with us is everything we've done has made us, we're not cyclical anymore. When you can do control, you can do US Europe, you have these hard assets, you're providing capital solution deals. So our mindset has been, and by the way, in every one of these things, it's taken us, we've built skills. It's not just paper trading, paper investing. Hey, I'm really good with paper investing two, three years <laughs> out of ten. Don't get the wrong idea, okay? But, but we, we built a business which is an all-season business, right? And that was the mindset, right? And, that, and I think that's the difference. When I compare us to a lot of our peer group, I think that is what differentiates us from so many of them. Yeah, I mean, a lot to tack on there. I mean, Europe is an interesting one, but I know, Phil, you have some, uh, you know, you wanted to sort of dig in a little bit in terms of, of, of sort of the process here. So, Phil, come on in. Thanks, Noel. Uh, Victor, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, yeah, just like Noel said, I'm just going to dig in a little bit deeper on some of the things that you're talking about. like. Um, do you have any hard, does the firm have some hard and fast rules that it really like, you know, thumb, you know, rules of thumb that you just don't stray from, you know, sometimes it can yeah. be a trust thing, you know, is this a management team that we can trust or, you know, a valuation thing, maybe we need hard assets or cash flow assets yeah. that make so much. And I'm just curious, you know, are those, are there certain themes that just, when I even ask the question, they just jump into your head? You know, Philip, you, if, you, if you'd been hearing me for the last 15, 20 minutes, you'd say, boy, these guys are really brave. We're not. <laughs> right? We are not. So if I could give you some of those very hard and fast rules, right? Uh, emerging markets, not really for us. You, you know, we, we need a rule of law where we kind of operate. And, and look, when we are trying to, if we have control of a business, we are trying to fix a business, we can't be in a world where fixing a business is really hard also because of labor laws and otherwise. So what we have found is, as a result, emerging markets are really a no-go area for the most part for us. Uh, when we look at even, you know, you heard me describe our focus on Europe. But there are, we have real, uh, you know, we find that parts of Europe are really tough to do business in. Uh, we made one investment in Italy about eight, 10 years ago, and boy, that kind of hurt. 
and it taught us a little something, right? It's a good thing it was a small investment. So, but I think for us, there are what we find certain countries clearly a bar just in terms of what it is. Well, what we also find for us is we are not really, you know, the really high growth businesses, very high multiple businesses with a tech overlay to them, not really for us. You know, when you, a lot of the companies we have taken control of, we've taken control of at five, six, seven times EBITDA, right? So when you start talking 12 times EBITDA, we get allergic. When you start talking 20 times, you know, look, we're under a desk, okay? And maybe the there are lots of people who are doing it. They're doing it really well. They have real skills in software and how to value it. It's not us, right? So I think, so I think, uh, so I think as you, so to your question, right, there are for us over 22 years, or for me, investing over 30 years. You, you know, we've kind of stumbled in a few places over those 30 years. We have a really good sense. Uh, we have a really good sense of some of the things to avoid. We are not as brave as you might have thought we were, to, uh, if you've just heard the last 20 minutes. Oh, that's really interesting because, uh, yeah, we, we always hear about hedge funds jumping into like what's the latest trend and that sort of thing. And it's clearly you guys stick to your knitting and what you've been good at and what you, uh, you know, developed your skill set for, um, you know. Uh, no, but, uh, but Philip, can I make one point for that? Though? Sure. Uh, we, you know, in all our businesses, it's innovate or die. Right? It really is. So when you, you know, we started out talking about us with a five-person investment team when we started in 2001, right? What you do notice is, you know, from our restructuring distressed debt routes, you see that growth in skills. But the growth in skills has taken place brick by brick and piecemeal. It wasn't like we woke up one day and we said, oh boy, we need to be in aviation. Let's go have a party, right? It was built up over time. So I think, uh, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't describe us necessarily as just sticking to our knitting, right? But I, so I think, I think we have innovated. We'll continue to innovate, but it's with that very disciplined mindset we go about it. Now that's that that's that's makes a whole ton of sense. And have you found times where maybe you're like we were just five people yesterday and now we're like thirty? Do maybe we should slow down? Or have you found that you've been kind of always growing and always deploying capital and that sort of you know and, and investing in the business? I guess I'm I'm kind of curious, you know. Like, have there been times where the growth was too fast? We've seen that. You've seen that probably in a lot of like companies out there that end up in distressed. <laughs> so I'm curious how you manage that growth. You know, there are uh, there are clearly so one part of that growth. Uh, you, you know, if you look at us uh, over the last 22 years since our founding, right? There have been moments in time, two, three, four years when we've been steady in team size, right? It, it's always had an upward incline to it, 
right? But there have been times we've been steadier in team size, consolidating kind of what we have. Uh, what I would also tell you, you know, besides kind of the growth in the team, uh, the growth in skills, there's another part of it I wanted to also describe, Philip. So uh, in 2021, right, for us, 2020 and 2021 were big investing years. Uh, we invested $4 billion in 2020, $6 billion as a firm in 2021. In 2022, in the last nine months of 2022, as the storm clouds arose, we pulled back. We have a lot of, yeah, we have a lot of capital, we have a lot of dry powder, but I think we, we saw what was happening. So uh, we invested a billion and a half dollars in those nine months, right? That's so amazing. I think, yeah, so I think for us, that discipline, the, it's got to be, to the point you're making, perhaps, there's got to be discipline about growth, which has its own challenges, as you heard me say. But there's got to be discipline about investing pace. It's not like bigger and better and every year. You know, you've just, you've got to have the, you know, look, if you're in the business of truly performing, right? Uh, you've got to have those kind of mindsets. It just can't be everything is good and bigger all the time, right? So I hope I hope we learned. Uh, I, I hope we have enough of. I think we have enough of that DNA to have that. Mindset. Yeah, that 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 makes so much sense because I think of your roots from a prop desk where you you started from an investment background, and I've seen a lot of asset managers where their big focus is on gathering assets and and that sort of thing and what you find is every year it's like okay we got to deploy this capital and you guys have managed to be nimble enough so that you can put big bets on in one year and then the next year it's all about harvesting and and growing your companies and that sort of thing um it, you know it, it I, i've definitely gotten in the sense that you're an opportunistic fund where really the opportunities you're, you're reacting to you know dislocations and debt prices and that sort of thing. Um, but you, you also, you know, the, the whole art of managing money, uh, there's the portfolio diversification aspect, there's the sizing aspect, you know, people will, you know, how big do you want to be in a certain deal versus not? Uh, and I, I guess, how do you think about that in, 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 when you see these opportunities? Uh, on the uh, one part, right, uh, so if I could even actually address your first thought about being opportunistic, right? We are that. We are opportunistic, right? We are, we are solving for 20% uh, gross IRRs, right? And, and we are typically looking to make a little bit of multiple on our money. It isn't like 20% IRR for a six-month investment either, right? So yes, we are opportunistic, but we are not trading opportunistic so much. Like, hey, I'm doing a lot of three months, six months trades to make 20%, right? What I'd also tell you about opportunistic is, it, you know, sometimes the market itself gives you an opportunity, right? And I believe we are in one of those times today, right, where the market is giving you an opportunity. But, but, you know, there was very little 
for most people to do from 2014 to 2020, if you are in the opportunistic credit world, right? Because there was no big market opportunity. What we did in those years, we invested three, four billion dollars buying debt secured by toll roads and waste to energy businesses. I do think we were almost unique in our peer group in terms of focusing on infrastructure, right? And that has been, and that, so even in a world where there wasn't supposedly opportunity, right, in that sector, there was some really interesting opportunity. And, 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 and you know, and we today own a toll road in Austin, Texas, and another one in Portugal. It, those are two of the 33-0 investments we made in those years, right? So opportunistic is not just, hey, I'm looking for market crashes or something. It's also, this world is so big, right? There are distinct opportunities, even though the market may not be crashing, but it takes skills uh, and then experience after that to really good at, get good at it. Well, I, I think, think next time I'm in Austin, I'll have to make sure uh, that I'm paying homage to you, I guess, as I'm traveling down the tollway. But uh... <laughs> uh, hey, no, uh, this tollway, it's the it's the what it's got the, 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 the billing for it is it's the it's the one road with the highest speed limit in the United States. So, so, 80, so 80 miles an hour, I think, is what it is down in Texas. Uh, it's 85, uh, actually. So, oh, there, uh, there yeah, so it's SH-130. It goes from Austin mm -hmm. to San Antonio. So go for it. I need your 12 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got family down there, so I'm usually down there about uh, once or twice. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so I, that's maybe I, you. I think, yeah, I think, Philip, your second question about kind of uh, portfolio concentration and uh, how we kind of think about it, right? We don't. We typically don't set a bar like how much we want between the U.S. and Europe. You know, I, I find most, there are years, uh, like you know, the dry years in supposedly the distressed or the credit businesses. You know, 2014 to 2020, we found a lot of stuff to do in Europe, and there were years where more than half our capital was going into Europe, right? So what I, but we don't set up percentage limit, but Europe has been 40% over a long period of time, and some years it's even 50% plus. On the other hand, you know, look, uh, you, you've got to be a, a one man's view, our view, you've got to be respectful about portfolio concentration, whether it is the absolute size of a position or your exposure to an industry. And all our funds, we typically have a 10% cap. Uh, it, it, you know, there with, technically with follow-on investments, one or two investments can be bigger, but we, we always generally respected that 10% cap on any given name. And, and across all our funds, we are really not big users of leverage. You know, leverage is a surefire way to get into trouble. And I think for us, uh, you may call us quite primitive in our approach, but we've done just fine 
without using leverage. So I think I think that part about portfolio management risk concentration is so important. And, and obviously, you know, uh, when 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 I see Italy, I make the sign of the cross. Okay? <laughs> it's going it's to it's going to take it's going to take us a lot to go back into kind of Italy again. But they have a great coffee. So. Uh, I, I think I actually want to dig into uh, Europe a little bit, and I know Phil had some follow-ons on Europe as well, but I guess, you know, one of the questions I, I would have there, do you think it's something, uh, you know, uh, we've heard other people talk about sort of the structural opportunities in Europe. Do you think it's a function of sort of how their markets have evolved? You know, historically, obviously, they've been a little bit more bank-oriented. You haven't had the same sort of high-yield market uh, over the years, so maybe you kind of have this sort of quick fall into, you know, from investment grade to stress or distress. Is it, is it something just sort of how Europe is built that sort of creates these sort of inefficiencies? Absolutely. <laughs> right. It's structural. And by the way, Noel, when stuff is structural, it just keeps on happening, right? Which is, uh, which is good for us in a crazy way, right? So, so look, what you have is uh, in uh, the European business, in high yield and leverage loans started almost like 10 years after the U.S. did, right? So the, the U.S. business started in 1990, 1991, the modern high yield business, really. You could even say in the 80s, the European business started in 1999, 2000. And, but today, Europe has a trillion, one and a quarter to one and a half trillion dollars of high yield bonds, leverage loans, and direct lending does. The US in comparison has something like three and a half billion, right? Europe's big, <laughs> right? Today, it's no longer the, it's smaller than the US, but it's no longer the little baby compared to the US. Now, and in Europe, what you have is because of the way the EU is structured, you just get friction. Uh, so if you remember, there's all this stuff about uh, the Britain Brexit. Before that, there was stuff like Italy's too indebted, which, by the way, is back again on the horizon, right? It, uh, Italy's uh, uh, debt to GDP ratios are so much higher than any of the other large countries in the world, right? So what we find with the Europe is, that friction, the fact that the EU is put together without a common, uh, you know, the fiscal policies in all the countries are different. It creates every two, three, four years, it creates friction. Even today, uh, like the bad debt in commercial bank balance sheets in the US is $87 billion. It's about $400 billion in Europe. Right, uh, bad debt in the commercial banking system, and and this Ukraine war, with electricity prices still at many multiples of what they used to be, is exacerbating things. Right, even as the pressure that uh, uh, Catherine that Lagarde is dealing with, to make sure that Italian interest rates don't blow out as part of her. Uh, interest raising campaign, right? All that, it just creates issues. And, and, and I think for us, we feel structurally, it's just set up for every two, three, four years, some problems, some cascading set of problems, which 
when it which uh, uh, affect the entire EU. So yeah, I, I think it's structural, and until the fiscal uh, policies get kind of in line with the monetary policy, the euro, right? This thing you just can't, you just can't avoid kind of what has to, what happens. That's uh, that, that's really interesting. The, the 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 Ukraine aspect and the higher energy prices in Europe, the, the, uh, the, you know what that it, the kind of stress that's putting on all these companies and the opportunity set from a distress perspective is, is really fascinating. Have you found that uh, many of these companies were almost lured into using debt to fund losses uh, through the lower interest rates that we experienced during? the pandemic and now that's coming to roost in a in a not so positive way uh, you, you know uh philip there's one word you're using i don't agree with load into taking low interest debt hey the 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 people who are leveraging these companies up are some of the smartest most successful people in the world okay nobody lowered them into doing anything <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I, I guess I, I was thinking maybe the market was luring them because they're like, well, I can issue equity, but my shareholders will hate me, or I can actually yeah. borrow at these incredibly low rates. And the, and now you're looking at it two years out, and it's like, okay, the rate on this debt is crazy. I mean, we've seen the airline industry where they were able to buy, you know, borrow yeah. at one percent, which is kind of fictional, but. It's uh, I'm just curious. It seems like you, you, they, they almost created a bigger problem here. And I, you know, from one name in particular, I look at Cineworld. I'm, I'm seeing that now because they have a dip that basically was funded losses. But um, I'm just curious if that's, is, is that how they funded losses in Europe? Was a lot of this debt, or was it, um, or is it equity? I don't. <laughs> You know, uh, in a lot of these businesses, uh, the way, uh, Philip, increasingly in the leverage loan market, the deals which have been done over the last three, five years, the credit documents are written very loosely. So when I first started in this business, right, uh, 30 years ago, uh, th there were covenants. And they were tight covenants, which kind of governed all these kind of documents, right? So now, uh, going forward, once the deal is done, there are effectively no, no real covenants on most of these leverage loans. And, and at the same point in time, the documents are written, which allow the equity owner to do a lot of different things to raise further borrowers. So there are all these things now called like drop-down structures. You can take some assets of a business, hide them off, borrow incremental money against them. Uh, there, are, there are ways you can put one group of creditors versus another, right? All those things have been underway. So when you think of somebody, so when somebody gets into trouble now, they don't really go, they don't get into trouble by just, they don't just say, I'm in trouble, it's game over. They really say, I'm in trouble, I, I think my equity still has upside, I am going to extend my runway by going out and doing some of my balance sheet management. 
So the way I kind of describe it isn't like anybody is luring anyone or doing anything like that. It's the owner of a business saying, boy, I'm in trouble, but I can take advantage of all these different things. And many, many people have taken advantage of them, right? So I, 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 and, and I think those cases are even actually growing in size over the last couple of years. And I don't see that stopping. So I, I, I do think I, I, in the old days, you might have been in a debt equity restructuring quite quickly. Now you fight for three years, four years, five years. You just fight, right? Uh, as an equity owner, extending out your runway, doing to do doing all the things you, I was describing. Interesting. I'm still looking up the definition of covenants. I haven't heard of those before, but Phil, I know you have some <laughs> questions. Um, of course, yeah. yeah. So yes, I remember when I got into the business, it was people put covenants into the company, financial covenants, because they were actually managing these loans. And on a more personal basis, it was, you know, I started Merrill Lynch Investment Managers and we had uh, loan funds and, you know, those were important. Those would negotiate it. Um, in this market, it seems, which is dominated by CLOs, um, you know, you have, they have structures that really are sensitive to defaults and really want to avoid defaults. So in a weird way, the covenants who are supposed to benefit the lenders, now we're finding they don't necessarily want that benefit. They just want to know when you're going to stop paying as opposed to necessarily a financial covenant. And I'm, you know, I'm curious from your perspective at Strategic Value Partners, um, when you have lenders like this and you enter a restructuring, how do you think about, you know, what their needs are in a restructuring versus, you know, what maybe your interests are? And, and, and I guess it's a distressed structuring question in, in a sense. Now, uh, you know, they are clearly, uh, uh, Philip, they are clearly, if you are a CLO, uh, you are more likely to want to kind of amend and extend the deal rather than kind of drive it to some sort of a debt equity restructure. And because that's kind of where the incentives lie, right? Uh, so, uh, and, and then if you are the uh, equity owner of it, you obviously want to kind of do the same. And the old tripwires of the covenants, they are no more really effective tripwires anymore, right? So, so it's just the way the world has gone. And I think credit quality has suffered because there has been so much money available to invest in loans and bonds, right? High yield bonds, credit quality has suffered. So Philip, there's one number which is breathtaking, what I'm going to tell you. 50% or so of leverage loans used to be double B. Today, 24% of leverage loans are double B, right? So right there, you can see the loss of credit quality which has taken place, right? That's part and parcel of it. So you have a loss of credit quality and higher rates in a floating rate instrument. Not good. Well, good for distressed investors. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, at some point, right? At, at some what point. it does do, Philip, is it postpones the inevitable, right? 
So, so it's it's not so good for distressed investors because uh, the reckoning is getting postponed. But there is often a reckoning, right? It just is what it is. Exactly. Um, you know, it's. I know strategic value partners played, has played, and continues to play a big role in in middle market. Um, because the, the DNA of your firm is, you know, to have a deep skill set where you can work with companies on, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I've noticed that with the, your firm is, you're no, you don't necessarily have to be part of a group when you're doing uh, a restructuring. Uh, you can pursue, uh, you know, I've seen you take large, over more than a majority stake, you know, control positions in, in companies. And I guess, can you talk about the differences and, you know, some of the nuances between when you're just one of, you know, 10 bondholders in a committee, an ad hoc committee, and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out some sort of consensus view versus uh, really kind of working directly with a company and, and in effect playing the role of a sponsor? Uh, you know, so, uh, you, you know, today, uh, when you look at kind of a snapshot of our portfolio, right? There'll be there'll be about uh, there are typically about 15 businesses or so where we will have significant equity stakes, uh, many of which we've gotten through a restructuring of debt into equity. And today there are 15 businesses where we have effectively operating control. In most of them, we own the majority of the equity. And those 15 businesses between them have 70,000 or so employees, right? So, so, you know, so when you look at us today, you see a combination of both kinds of things. And you also see there are 31 airplanes we own today, 100% of, uh, we own some of those toll roads. So there are other assets we also own, right? I think what we find is when we, we really want control, if we are going to drive some deep operational changes inside a business, if you're going to go in and help a business really grow, invest money in it, maybe, by the way, shut down some plants which are not productive, Build, uh, invest in some new capex, in some new lines where they never had the money to do it before. Strengthen the management team. If you're going to work with operations hands-on, we, we believe you really need operating control. If it's three, four investors who have control of a business together, it's hard to build that consensus. You know, to make some of the changes I'm describing in a business, it is, I mean, say those have to be done relatively quickly at pace. And you've got to make some strong decisions, which is very hard to do with three or four people. So I do find there's a difference between the deals where we have operating control and the other deals. And in the other, the other deals, we are often working uh, with uh, with some of our peers or with some private equity firms, right? With 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 shared control. But in those places, when you get to three, four people, forget about ten. When you're at ten, 
there's, it's not much you can do, but even with three, four people, we find it's very hard to drive an operational transformation. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the things that I think is interesting, you know, given that you've played such a role in the control positions and, you know, directing, you know, selecting board directors or putting, you know, perhaps uh, employees of SVP on the boards themselves, is that uh, you bump heads with, you know, existing stakeholders, you know, like other creditors, um, other, you know, you know, other shareholders. And I guess, um, you know, we've seen a big theme over the past five years, maybe 10 years. Actually, it's I'd argue it's it's always been around in distress is this term called creditor on creditor violence, where, you know, it's not so much that you're looking across the table in a negotiation, but you also have to look to your left and to your right who you get, who you might have came <laughs> in with and, and figured out whether you got to worry about them. And Victor, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm sure you've seen it in the press a bunch. And I just find it an interesting subject to talk about with people who have been around. You, you know, uh, Philip, there are really two kinds of violence, right? Uh, the first violence is really the equity owner on the creditor violence, right? Because, you know, when, when an equity guy goes out and raises debt, uh, all debt holders are supposed to be kind of equal, and they have a certain collateral, which was the original deal, right? So when you do drop-down structures, uh, you, you, you are suddenly taking collateral, uh, which legally you can do under the documents, but you are stripping it from the original creditors and, 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 and raising fresh capital against that, right? So I think the first kind of violence, which is increasingly prevalent because of these very loose documents, the creditors have by default consented to being treated like that, right? Because that's the way they lent money. So what I would highlight for you is that's the first kind of violence. Right, we see, and it's uh, it's much more prevalent today. But it has gone on for the longest time in this business. But it's picked up speed a lot. I think the second kind of violence you're talking about, the creditor and creditor, it has also existed in some shape or form for the longest time. The large creditors. Technically, look, when you borrow money from somebody and all the creditors are equal, but the large creditors are willing to kind of back up their loans with fresh new money if that is what is required. Sometimes it's hard for some creditors after they made the initial loan to back it up with fresh new money. The company needs the fresh new money the providers of that fresh new money are able to cut kind of a very attractive deal for themselves. And what we've found is that creditor, that's what I'm describing loosely as creditor on creditor violence. It has always existed in this business. It will, and I do think, and, and, and look, if you're a company and you're looking for fresh capital, you want to go to the existing creditors, but if some people can't back up their money, it's like tough, right? And, and then you get this, and the company needs it, 
right? So, so I think uh, I think both those things, uh, equity holders, violence on creditors, uh, some creditors, violence on others. It's it has always gone on, but with these looser documents, both those things, much more prevalent today than five years ago much, much more than 10 years ago, there's just been, and I think it's the loose documents, Philip. It has just increased the level. Uh, so if you're going to be in this business, just make sure you've got access to really good legal talent. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we, have a, we have almost double-digit number of lawyers uh, in-house now. So many of them work on firm stuff, not just deal stuff, right? But I, but I think what you're going to do, what I, what I think if you're going to be in this business, you just need to be just armed with the appropriate amount of legal talent. When you're making investments, you've got to read the documents very thoroughly. It's got to be part of your diligence process as you look at making new investments. Yeah, no, it, it really strikes me as there's a two-prong approach. It's one, you want to make sure your documents are as tight as possible. But then there is also the, the, the people you're talking to on the other side, the, the management team and the board of directors. I mean, you know, certain people, you know, I, I think are akin to what can I get away with is kind of their mindset versus, you know, that's not right. You know, like some there are there are companies and I, I've actually heard a, a big asset manager tell me that they prefer working with you know, public companies is a versus like, uh, you know, some of the big private equity sponsors out there for, for that reason. But um, I, I think uh, it's interesting. I, I thought the same, but not true. <laughs> Can I tell you, in the last year, we've seen public companies do some amazingly aggressive things. Wow. Right? There's no, there's no difference between the public company and the private equity-owned company, right? I think if you have an aggressive board and they want to do it, my God, we've seen them do it. Right? Fascinating. Um, yeah, it would seem like the playbook's sort of been opened up for everybody, and obviously the lawyers can kind of walk into any room and sort of sell that thing. But maybe, uh, you know, hoping that <laughs> yeah, you could sort of... Uh, Maybe uh, grace us with maybe some specific examples, uh, you know, uh, of something where, you know, the the SVP approach is really best modeled. Uh, obviously, I know there's sensitivities around maybe getting into a specific names, but at least maybe process-wise, uh, maybe walk us through uh, what a deal looks like. Uh, you know, so look, I'll I'll. Uh... I'll, I'll pick a deal, uh, uh, if you, and if you like, Noel, I'm happy to pick different kinds of deals, but uh, why, why don't I talk about two deals? The first one is very much an event-driven, more, uh, more liquid event-driven kind of deal, and the second one is a deal where we took control of a company. Very different. I'm giving you the barbells of what we do. So, right? It is so uh, the all, the market opportunity set in the event-driven side has really opened up now over the last year. We are not still at full run or anything, full gallop, okay? But we are starting to step up more aggressively as this as some of this debts. We are in those two three years out of ten when paper is good, okay? We are in those years now. So there's a really interesting business 
uh, which uh, uh, it's an auto parts business. Uh, it was bought for $12 billion, and it's a Japanese-European business. Bought for $12 billion, $9.5 billion of debt, $2.5 billion of equity. And, 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 you know, in the business itself, uh, you, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it was bought by a really good fund, but the business itself, uh, you know, struggled. We've had problems in car production. We've had problems in supply chain. So the business struggled. And as, uh, as a result of that, the company's debt got restructured. Uh, it got restructured. It got cut down. Uh, to, to five and a half billion dollars. And, and at the same point in time, the equity owners put in some more equity into it. Now, this debt, this deal's done in Japan. It's Japanese bankruptcy codes. Uh, it's a Japanese European business. So Japanese bankruptcy codes are hard to get comfortable with if you don't have familiarity. We have a small team in Tokyo. I've lived in Tokyo investing there for a few years. And at the same time, it's a tough business, right, to, to piece together. So look, we spent uh, months, including with external help to kind of understand the business and to be able to put it together. And, and, and look, uh, uh, over the co uh, course of the last five, six months, uh, we bought $900 million of this debt at a price of 37 cents of face, and, which, is, which means that we've created the business for $2 billion, give or take, right? This is a business which was originally bought for $12 billion, uh, which was valued at $6 billion as part of this restructuring, right? So the point I'm making to you is, uh, you, you know, uh, to, to be able to unlock this deal, you needed all those different skills, uh, right? But if you have those, I'm not trying to tell you the entire world is this distress. Don't get the wrong idea, please, okay? <laughs> but what I'm trying to tell you is, hey, this sort of opportunity wouldn't really have existed a year ago, two years ago. It's here. I, I think the second deal, just so you get a contrast about it, uh, is, uh, look, we, we ended up buying a business, a building materials business, last year uh, for roughly about a billion dollars, give or take, right? And it's a building materials company. These guys are really, they're really good at what they do. They make, uh, they, they custom make windows. They do vinyl siding. Uh, it's a repair and renovation oriented business. So it's steadier than something tied to the new home cycle. And by the way, the deal got restructured in bankruptcy three years ago. We were trying to buy the debt. We could never buy it. We tried. Then we were trying to buy the equity from the debt holders. They wouldn't sell it to us. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> right? But we, we knew the we know the industry really well. We have a couple of, uh, we, there are a couple of other building materials businesses we own. So when we looked at it, right, we said, wow, uh, interesting. It's having a tough time with higher raw material prices, but interesting. And, and the margins the business did were about 8% or something. And comparable businesses were 17, 18% margins. 
So we're like, hey, not only can we buy it at a really good price, uh, it was about six odd times EBITDA cash flow, which is a good price. We really think we can close the gap on margins between us and our peer group. You, you know, any business which has struggled through bankruptcy, in the, which was true in this case, right? You just, you, 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 you know, when you're struggling with a bad financial structure, you're just not focused so much on the business because it's so much about survival for the next day and the next day, right? So when you come in with just a clean balance sheet, a fresh approach, uh, you, you really put your shoulder behind it operationally to kind of see what you can do to improve. In this case, we believe, and we could be wrong, in this case, we believe to really transform a business, right? Uh, I, I think those are the kind of things which we find attractive. So, but I think those two deals, real bookends, right? Uh, in terms of from the event-driven side, all the way to kind of taking control of a business and improving it operationally. But I think it gives you a sense of the sort of stuff they're capable of. Yeah, and I, I want to step back and sort of do macro high level a, a little bit here, just to get your thanks as maybe uh, to, to wrap the call. But I did... You know, you mentioned something there uh, as related to the building material company that you've got these other exposures in that space. So is that something where you look at and say, obviously, we've got sort of uh, capacity and knowledge set? Uh, is it a synergies play as well? Or is it just saying, hey, listen, we can port this information or this knowledge set over here and sort of maybe start to extract a couple hundred extra basis points of margin or something? Yeah. Uh, this is uh, uh, the two other businesses we own. Well, one is in Germany, one is in the U.S., and they are not a good fit. There's no obvious synergy, right? We will, you know, when we end up owning businesses, no, we will invest in them. We will we'll do some add-on acquisitions uh, as it makes sense. This obviously is so big, it's much more than an add-on acquisition, right? But But I think for us, uh, we do we, look if there were synergies and it made sense, we, we would look to do that. But in this case, it was really using, it was really using the learning. The management team from the other U.S. business really was part of the due diligence here, right? Because they knew this business really well. In fact, the CEO of our other business used to run a competing business. Right. So there's <laughs> well, an advantage. Yeah. No, it is just it just. And, and by the way, yeah, you know, he was talking about how uh, the way uh, this company was selling windows and the way he sold windows and why he and he was very pinpoint about kind of some of the things you could do better. Right. So I think I, I, I think that sort of stuff really additive but no in this case it wasn't so much synergies it was using uh, using the experience we have together with some of the management team we have to help us make a better decision fantastic so i know we, we've capitalized quite a bit of your time here so maybe we just step back and roll up and because we've done basically this whole call in reverse We'll finish with your market view, if you if you care to offer that to us in terms of, you know, we've heard a lot of different people talk about how they think about this credit cycle. And is it a 2008? Is it a, you know, 2015, 16, where you get sort of a no landing scenario? Or is it something more historic where you, 
like, you know, the turn of 2000s or the early part of your career where you get these more elongated cycles where distress sort of rolls through sectors and it's years as opposed to months. Do you have a sense in terms of, you know, how you're thinking about this particular cycle? Uh, you know, our view today now, uh, you, you know, look, the, the, as we look forward, the view is foggy, right? It is, uh, uh, you, you, see, you see some of these uh, large companies and the S&P 500 shedding workforce. And then at the same time, you see this kind of historically low uh, unemployment rates at the same time. Right? You see the Fed and the ECB jacking up rates and no stopping them, right? You listen to the language, it's very hawkish. And at the same time, you see an equity market. It's had a tough time in the last month, but it's, it's actually not had a, as much of a tough time as you might expect, right? So I think, I think what we tell you is, hey, we think that there's likely a recession of some sort. Uh, right, but is it shallow? Is it deep? Is it a soft landing? Not quite sure. I do think what we would tell you is whichever one it is, the, this is a fundamentally different cycle than what we have dealt with, and me personally, what I've seen over 30 years. In the 30 years, with every cycle in the past, we have seen the central banks providing support with lower rates. It's the first time in 30 years the central banks are hiking to, to manage inflation and they're not providing that support. And I think at this point, I think we can all be reasonably assured that interest rates are higher for longer. That is different. Real, that is so different than any other cycle we've seen in modern history. I think what's also different today is in the US and Europe, uh, China has been uh, such a catalyst for growth. And with the US pulling apart, China as a catalyst for US growth, much less so. It's no, uh, you know, you're gonna find a new catalyst, <laughs> right? But uh, so, and, and then I think the third thing, and we touched it earlier, is just Europe, much more fragile uh, and at points in time. So I think as we look forward next three, four years, regardless of whether it is shallow, deep recession or a soft landing, we think we are entering a very different world. And in that world, the opportunity set is really picking up. I, I think we said we made very modest investments last year for us. We really pulled in. But we are starting to step up investments. Our pipeline, no. Our pipeline used to be about 80 billion, 80 billion of deals. And this is, we have 80 investment professionals. This was our curated pipeline in January 2022. Not some list, but a curated pipeline. That curated pipeline today is 120 deals and 230 billion of debt. There are 25 or so deals where we are trying to buy debt in today's marketplace, if it just gives you a sense, right? So we see the opportunity set really opening. We, we believe it's a tough, messy, 
two to four years as we deal with higher rates, uh, China, Europe. We think it's going to be a messy two, four years. This is not like the, this is no COVID cycle, okay? There's no, there's no <laughs> magic bump. Uh, to, to us, it feels a lot more like 2002, actually, which was, it took us a while to grind down, and then it took us a while to grind back up, right? It feels much more to us uh, in keeping with that cycle than any other cycle. Fantastic. Well, really appreciate the thoughts there and, and all the thoughts uh, and knowledge provided today. Uh, I, I, I think that sort of takes us sort of to the end of time here. So I definitely want to, on behalf of Phil and myself, uh, thank you, Victor, for uh, spending some time and some knowledge with us today. Uh, and with that, uh, let's go ahead and turn back to get the team's thoughts uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. So great discussion as always. Uh, so let's go ahead and keep the insights going here. And Nagisa, first over to you. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of update in terms of where we're at with uh, our friends at J&J? So J&J lost at the Third Circuit at the end of January. Uh, and since it's sort of the company has done what we've expected it to do, uh, most from what we've seen has been pri primarily this procedural efforts to pause the effect of the ruling for as long as possible. Uh, the Third Circuit decision basically dismissed the case. But uh, what the company did was right after was file a petition for rehearing and bank, uh, the company being LPL management, the talc unique of J&J. And that automatically paused the dismissal. Uh, that petition basically asked the majority of the active judges in the court to revisit this three-judge panel decision that was to throw out the Units Chapter 11 case. It's extremely rare. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened before. And uh, if it actually is granted, it would give J&J the opportunity to have the case reheard again uh, and maybe have that opinion uh, revised, revisited in, in one form or another. Uh, it is unlikely, uh, but something did happen in the past few days, few days ago actually, that is potentially good news for J&J, though it's hard to measure its significance. The Third, the third Circuit filed a request on the docket asking the plaintiffs, or the tort plaintiffs, to respond to Johnson Johnson's talc unit bid for further review. Without that request, there would have been a virtually zero probability for the Third Circuit to rehear the case. With the request, the probability is no longer zero, though it's, so, so it's hard to know what that is. But it is ultimately good news for J&J. We don't foresee uh, that the Third Circuit will agree to, uh, to revisit the case and extend the proceeding further. But it, it is the request for response by the talk claimants sort of leaves open the possibility that the court may revisit this initial ruling. Um, as far as what the questions are at this stage, the Third Circuit will primarily focus on whether there was anything extraordinary about the appeal, anything extraordinary about the opinion itself, the goal of talk claimants uh, when responding to the petition, like, would, would be to sort of show that the panel decision didn't break from third sort of precedent, that this was sort of a run-of-the-mill opinion 
does not create fundamental problems of the law in future bankruptcy cases. Uh, they will also likely try to show that this new state, well, whether new or not, the standard for financial distress that the Third Circuit art articulated is consistent with the law and what the ca with prior case law. Um, there's also will be this push by our claimants to show that there's no questions of quote unquote exceptional importance here regarding this good faith standard that the Third Circuit uh, discussed. Um, the request, as far as procedurally, the request for rehearing sort of, as I said, has stayed the dismissal until a decision is rendered. Once that happens, I we do expect LDL management to seek a further stay of dismissal, even if rehearing is denied. Uh, that will probably be a tough ask, but since we do expect LTL management to probably petition the U.S. Supreme Court for review in the event rehearing is denied, uh, it will likely go to the Third Circuit and ask for further stay of dismissal. These um, are sort of tough questions again, but the request, is, I, I do think it's unlikely to succeed, but if the Third Circuit does grant it, uh, it would generally not exceed 90 days, and during that time, LTL would have this is the time LTL would have to petition the Supreme Court for review, uh, and then if it's accepted, the stay may remain in effect until the Supreme Court decides the case. So that's right, where so, we are with respect to J&J. <laughs> so I'm going to let listeners go ahead and rewind that and listen to that whole thing a couple more times so you can sort of disinter all that information that's in there and, and sort of build your own timeline. Or, of course, uh, check out Nagisa's uh, research on the terminal would be the other option there. But uh, what implications does that have, do you think, if any, uh, for our friends also in the investment-grade landscape over at 3M? So this the sixty-one billion floor that was established under the funding agreement in uh, LTL JJ's Talc unit was uh, the cornerstone of the Talc bankruptcy, but also led to this ultimate downfall of the Third Circuit. Three days after that, uh, the 3M torts plaintiffs sought to do the same thing in the Indiana Bankruptcy Court. Uh, they requested to dismiss Eros, so the 3M's Inflex uh, unit. Chapter 11 uh, is probably unsurprising. I think that it may succeed in light of both uh, the Third Circuit decision to toss J&J's talking to bankruptcy, but also based on a previous decision by the Indiana Bankruptcy Court, which refused to extend the stay to 3M. Uh, the Indiana Court isn't bound by the Third Circuit, uh, but the 3M plaintiff's request does close sort of does follow closely that decision. Uh, since then, the Department of Justice, the U.S. trustee, has also joined the tort victims in seeking to toss a three-in bankruptcy, and, and there's a hearing for that in April, so we'll have an answer on that. I do want to sort of focus on what this is because there's a lot going on with respect to 3M. Uh, the request to dismiss the bankruptcy is largely focused on uh, on the earplug unit's lack of financial distress. Uh, 3M, that unit has already lost at the bankruptcy court level uh, when it failed when uh, it failed to extend the automatic stay to 3M. That case is now an appeal at the Seventh Circuit. But now, this, so the new question now for the bankruptcy court, what the plaintiffs are arguing now, and this is for the first time, is that the filing uh, was made uh, wasn't made in good faith because in good faith because of this because of this uncapped uh, non-recourse funding agreement. Uh, that 3M 
gave its ear, it gave its ear, uh, earplug unit. Uh, it didn't. We know 3M didn't use the Texas two-step maneuver that was adopted by J and J, but those funding agreements were central to both cases. Uh, the previous uh, ruling by the Indiana court is probably meaningful. Uh, the fact that this commitment to 3M's commitment to fund both of the Chapter 11 case and this earplug-related claim was the basis to deny the extension of the automatic stay at 3M is probably significant here. Um, I think that a lot, maybe 3M may focus a lot on previous remarks by the bankruptcy court in saying that, well, this case, uh, that it presumed this case was filed in good faith. Uh, but uh, this is a new question. When, when the bankruptcy court said that Aero was an appropriate debtor last year when it deciding the the uh, automatic stay question. It did so under the understanding that the issue of dismissal wasn't at play then, but it is at play now. So until now, no party has tried to dismiss uh, the 3M units case. So this is a new question. Uh, one last thing on that: there's been a lot of talk this past few days uh, about 3M's latest request to. And the exclusive Chapter 11 control and proceed to estimate earplug-related uh, tort claims. Uh, this is probably sort of a last-ditch effort to, uh, to to make use of the bankruptcy system. Uh, I think it's unlikely to probably affect the case uh, as it faces dismissal now in April. Uh, there's very the one thing to keep in mind is very little progress has been made in Aero's bankruptcy. That's in contrast to J&J, that it's already started its claims estimation process. So as the case is at the turning point, I think uh, 3M and ERA are trying to show that, doing all they can to show that bankruptcy, in fact, can work. It's just a question of whether it's too late at this point. So the, maybe this is a little bit premature, but before we sort of, I guess, maybe one follow-on I have there, is there, is there anything that we're seeing here uh, that maybe dissuades maybe future attempts uh, at this uh, this kind of legislation or or this kind of uh, bankruptcy court optimization, whatever we want to call it, um, is there anything that that's sort of manifesting that that sort of we think has impact for the future? Well, I think any of both J and J three M cases, I think this were meant to be in for the long haul. Nobody expected these cases to succeed or fail at the first try. Either way, either party was going to pursue this through the appeal process, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So it's there's nothing unexpected here. Obviously, there's probably uh, a lot of uh, companies that may be waiting on line and seeing how ultimately the Third Circuit finalizes its decision, how the Seventh Circuit will could do the same thing or rule differently, and see how the Supreme Court will treat whether or not they'll take any of these cases. So there are probably companies waiting on the sideline and seeing how that works out. But one thing to also keep in mind is these are different circuits. Uh, another one could see this in a whole new different light. So we're still, believe it or not, at the very initial stages of this whole process. Also, the legal questions we face are, are, are pretty discreet and things you see only at the beginning of the cases. For example, we haven't seen the Texas two-step being challenged from a fraudulent transfer perspective. Uh, and that's like a whole new ball game with a completely different set of questions than what we've seen so far. So a uh, lot to unpack still. So let's maybe change gears here a, li a little bit, uh, something maybe a little bit less complex. Uh, let's go to Revlon. 
Uh, and Phil, I want to bring you into this discussion as well, because I know you've got thoughts there. But maybe, Nagisa, let's start with you in terms of where are we at uh, uh, with Revlon's travails? So a day before the hearing to, appro to approve the Chapter 11 plan disclosure, Revlon announced this agreement, which was probably unsurprising. It's agreement in principle with the Etha Group of 2016 lenders uh, and the Creditors Committee and the Etha Group of Ranker lenders uh, to basically conclude the case. It, it was interesting, uh, and why the reason I say it's unsurprising is because it came on the heels of the 2016 lenders' loss in the suit that had challenged the stripping of their liens back in 2020 for the benefit of brain call lenders. Um, court's recent dismissal of the case basically ended the 2016 lenders' efforts to reverse this 2020 transactions. Uh, it ended their effort to basically restore their first priority lien status or subordinate the brand lenders' rights. Um, that decision was uh, sort of, again, sort of a, kind of look, talking a lot about procedure today, but it was a procedural decision at its core. Uh, the court ruled that those claims, that the claims that 2016 lenders had raised, belonged exclusively to Revlon. And the suit was deemed sort of an effort to sidestep bankruptcy loss, automatic stay, and step on the shoes of, uh, of the debtor uh, of, of Revlon. So we didn't actually get an answer to the substantive questions as to what happened in 2020, uh, but uh, the dismissal sort of ended uh, this long saga that's been continuing for years and basically gave rise to uh, the deal that we now have, and I think Phil can may want to speak on that a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, they, they the 2016 term lenders' loss in that suit really kind of put them on their heels and it kind of delivered a death blow for them. I mean, you know, they settled, they got marginal improvement from their settlement, uh, you know, but I, I think they can at least call it a day. I mean, this is a breathtaking loss for uh, these 2016 term lenders. If you think about where they were in August of 2020, uh, when they got their whole loan paid par plus accrued, and now they are looking at a 16.75% uh, cash recovery if they want that, or they can put new money in and uh, they can get maybe a 29 cent recovery for that piece of debt. Um, but th this is, this is, this is, I think a classic showcase for anyone who's going to say, Hey, creditor, uh, on creditor violence is a great way to like, uh, you know, show off your distressed funds prowess. Uh, it, it worked for them. Um, you know, we calculate that without the new money, the, Branco 2 loans. Now, this is the old 2016 term loans. They, they rolled them up into a new Branco B2 term loan, and that loan got 42.7 cents without new money uh, versus 16.6 .6 cents for the 2016 term loans. And then if you are putting in the new money, they, the Branco guys are getting 77 cents versus about 28 0.8 cents. So, you know, it's about a 25 to 50 point improvement. Now, I, before, so, so 
congratulations, creditor on creditor violence works. Um, but I, I, I should point out here, I wouldn't be fair, you know, for both, for both, for the 2016 term lenders, when the company was in trouble, needed liquidity in May 2020, um, you know, another option there could have been, no, we're not going to lend you new money. This company's over levered and really for the best thing for the business is if we equitize our debt and, you know, it goes into restructuring then and there. Um, you probably could have saved a lot of structuring fees, a lot of, uh, you know, professional fees, a lot of, I mean, they paid out unsecured notes out at par, um, you know, later on that year from some of the money that the Branco lenders gave it. So long story short, yes, you do better, but, you know, and this is one of the things that I always talk about is like, there's a ton of money setting up these um, out of court deals. And if they're truly out of court and you're going to keep the company out of court, that's fine. And, you know, no one has a crystal ball. You can't always predict these things with finality. But if you're doing out of court just to be in court and then that's when you're going to deliver a death blow, which a lot of these up tiering transactions are, um, you might want to just consider, you know, cutting to the chase and, and, and telling the company the best thing is to file. Yeah, so that's a couple of death blows and a five-minute response there, which has me thinking about Street Fighter, <laughs> um, which is a game I grew up with because it's actually over 30 years old, which is kind of kind of sad. It makes me feel very old. But speaking of death blows or near-death blows, maybe we change gears a little bit here. And, and, and I know creditor on creditor violence is a favorite subject for Eliza. Eliza, Let's get you in, and I know one of the areas that you've been focused on, or one of the names you've been focused on, is our friends over at uh, Bed Bath, uh, who uh, you know escaped the clutches, uh, but but maybe not forever. So, so what's our latest there? Yeah, they escaped the clutches of bankruptcy. You know, just by a few days. Um, our reporting was that uh, the company was you know days, if not hours, away from filing for bankruptcy before, while it was also working on this equity deal that it pulled out at the last minute and it's highly unusual, creative. Um, it's a deal that allowed them to raise money by issuing convertible preferred share warrants to a hedge fund, maybe a group of hedge funds led by Hudson Bay uh, so that that allow Hudson Bay. So Hudson Bay bought those warrants and now it's allowed to buy, buy those preferred convertible shares and convert them into common equity at any time it would like at a significant discount. So it's a win for the hedge funds and, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond at least got a chunk of $225 million worth of financing right there. Um, that's not, it wasn't good news for their shareholders because it introduced a lot of new equity that diluted the outstanding, but I mean, at the same, it's certainly good for bondholders um, who get to see the company have at least a little bit more of a chance. But the big part about the deal was that, you know, the company trumpeted it as a, an over $1 billion deal, but $800 million of that is contingent on Bed Bath & Beyond keeping a stock price above a certain point. So that gets really funny because the company has been reliant on meme stock traders really have been keeping this 
stock, uh, you know, highly with a high volume of trading and above a certain point. Um, but even those guys could tell and caught on to the fact that this latest deal was not good for equity. They've abandoned ship and the shares have been falling. If they go below 125, all that future financing is wiped out. If they go below 150, much of it's wiped out. So if so, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond ends up with only a little bit less than the rescue it got in August, which as we know, did not last it long. It was um, talking bankruptcy by January. So a similar chunk of cash is not gonna last it much long either, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I always think of those stories as sort of like trying to pull away from a black hole, right? But uh, Phil, I know yeah. this is a name you've also done a little bit of work on, anything to add there? Yeah, the, the only thing I'd add is, um, you know, it, it really th this this whole structure is really interesting because it, it, you're basically putting an intermediary in between the company selling shares to people in the marketplace. You know, and uh, you know you have your uh, at the market programs that other companies have done. Another company I've looked at, Excella. Um, Excella generated six hundred million dollars in two thousand twenty-two from equity sales. They diluted the heck out of uh, their, you know, uh, shareholder base. And this this is interesting because the company steps away a little bit from the liability for sharing to retail customers because the hedge fund's stepping in there and purchasing at a discount. So they're, and they're probably just collecting this spread. Um, it's interesting, you know, and. I'd have to argue with the lies a little bit. I think it's it's the only chance that shareholders had here if they were gonna like, because for shareholders at this point, they're viewing it as an option and their option exp their option actually expires when a company goes through bankruptcy to the point where their stock is actually canceled. Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, it prolongs it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, I, I, I think this is this continues to be a, a a dirty you know kind of part of the financing space because you know the, the people who are supporting these companies in, in this kind of thing are this it's a it's a it's either a fast-moving crowd where people are just buying it because they expect to sell it a little bit higher or you know maybe there's some poor unfortunate individuals out there who really think that this company's turning it around um, I can tell you the cash destruction, the cash mm -hmm. bleeding that this company had in 2022, that's not wow. the kind of turnaround that you're going to see happen quickly. So, no. you know, this is, you know, my view is this is probably more of a, a very, very cheap Band-Aid as opposed to um, something, you know, more meaningful. Yeah, so we'll keep our eyes out for the next death blow. Um, with that, let's maybe bring uh, Nagisa back into the fold here. So Nagisa, one of the areas that we've been uh, sort of long and covering, uh, certainly since last summer when things started starting to fall apart for the space is, is crypto. Uh, hard to kind of go a, a podcast without talking about uh, the, the goings-ons with our friends over in FTX. So uh, I think we've got sort of some evolution there in terms of the Robin Hood stuff and the shares there. Like what's the latest on that? Sure. So there, I guess two new things there. Uh, Robinhood announced first. Robinhood announced its intent to repurchase 
almost this almost 56 million of shares that were originally bought uh, for about 650 million by saying Bankman Freed's emergent. Uh, there's been a question in the bankruptcies of both FTX and BlockFi as to how to preserve value and also who these shares belong to. Um, that determination as to who they belong to or their kind of proper owner still, I think, remains ways off. But the decision by Robinhood to uh, purchase these shares does help it, uh, helps uh, kind of preserve the value. Uh, and I think that's something that all these parties share in common. I think they're kind of on the same page. Um, alongside that, Emergent actually filed for bankruptcy on February 3rd itself. Uh, it, it intended, intending to request the case to be administered jointly with FTX. Uh, the case was filed by the joint provisional liquidators appointed in the Antiguan court. Um, and that sort of, that appointment was controversial in and of itself. And also the filing seems to point in large part, to have been done in large part out of these concerns that, uh, about challenges that were put forward by BlockFi and Bankman Freed against the liquidators, uh, believing that they're, in their words, sort of believe it's more likely that BlockFi and other parties will comply with Delaware bankruptcy court orders versus those in the integral court. Um, that filing doesn't, uh, again, doesn't directly help determine the rightful owners also of the assets, but does, uh, I believe, uh, could hurt BlockFi's pursuit of the shares. BlockFi is challenging that filing, uh, and I think in the coming in the coming weeks we'll have uh, a better understanding as to emergent fits and all of this. All right, so let's maybe move into the closing credits here. Uh, and appropriately, we leave that to Cineworld. Not sure what's going on there, but uh, is there anything to Giza Phil? We're not either. There's been a lot of updates in the court. I think we're, expe we're expecting a plan to be filed. I think the latest we've heard the week of February 7th, which is this week. Uh, so at some point, probably this week, we'll have a plan filed and we'll. Uh, hopefully, learn more about that. Yeah, we're we're really excited about that because it, it's 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 a we're gonna we're gonna get some kind of picture of valuation from them. Um, you know, I put out a hypothetical plan of reorganization for them uh, based on what I thought made sense in terms of there. What we heard from a news story that said there was an eight hundred million dollar rights offering. And I was like, if it, someone's putting in that big a check, $800 million, they're going to want that money to really be uh, a great investment. And so I used about a, I think a $2.7 billion plan uh, enterprise value, a 30% discount. Anyway, long story short, um, you know, other, I, you know, the feedback I got was, oh, it, it, it's probably going to be higher because it's a, you know, maybe a $4 billion EV. That, that was what was uh, uh, someone mentioned in this story. So um, maybe I'm far off, but, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is when you're putting $800 million into a company that is, you know, as vulnerable as the cinemas are, I mean, you know, that, that whole space is really in trouble. There's secular headwinds. And then, you know, you throw onto it, you know that it's not getting any relief if there's, you know, 
Uh, hopefully this never happens. But, uh, you know, another pandemic happened. And, and you know, how would that impact? All right, things? we're going to shut you down. Yeah, there, I know. So I, I hear uh, you. But as investors, you have to time. think about these longer term things. Is this really a 10 times multiple <laughs> business anymore? So no, anyway. I, I think it's a very fair question. And I think we've certainly seen them sort of struggle to sort of rebound or, or recapture sort of the pre-pandemic vibe. But uh, at any rate, something to certainly keep our eyes on. And I guess uh, maybe in a couple of weeks, we'll have some more answers there. But with that, um, let's sort of be mindful of our listeners' time. And I guess we'll move to conclude and thank everyone for joining us once again this month. So on behalf of Eliza, Nagisa, Phil, and myself, we thank you. And we look forward to uh, entertaining you once again in April. Take care. Take care.